Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Our sermon series through the book of Hebrews has come to Hebrews chapter 11. And we will turn there in a moment, Hebrews chapter 11. But first, to get a little context, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 4. We'll read Genesis 4, 1 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the grounds of the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. Then it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushiel, and Methushiel begot Lamech. Amen. This tragic story of two brothers highlights for us the experience many of us have discovered. Two children 
having so much in common can be so very much different, not alike at all. We're introduced to the difference between Cain and Abel immediately. One is a keeper of sheep and one is a tiller of the ground and this is perfectly fine. Being a farmer who cares for the garden and the creation is is a good job. Being a farmer who cares for the creation is a good job. Notice I said it the same way for both of them. One cares for crops and one cares for animals and it doesn't matter which one's which. I almost quoted the movie Oklahoma. The farmer and the plowman should be friends. But Cain and Abel diverge in a far more radical way. Cain has no faith in God. As we'll see in a moment in Hebrews chapter 11, it is faith that is the fundamental difference between Cain and Abel. And this is expressed in a series of realities. The first is that in faith, Abel offers a blood sacrifice to atone for his sins. The firstborn lamb from his flock. Abel does not. He offers the first fruits, perhaps, of the ground. Which is not an illegitimate sacrifice. But in this case, we know that it is not brought in faith. Which is the problem. This subsequent distinction becomes very clear when we see Cain's response. He is so angry that God has rejoiced in the blood sacrifice that atoned for sin, but not rejoiced in the first fruit of his labors, his works. He becomes angry. You want to know the best way to tell if someone's heart is really in the right place? Tell them no. Boy, do you find out if their heart is humble or not real quick. Do they submit to no? Or do they become angry? Cain doesn't believe in God. Cain doesn't love God. He's angry with God. He doesn't submit to God. He isn't humble before God. He isn't like, gee, God, you know what? You're right. I should do what you want. I should do what you say. That's not what Cain does. Instead, he gathers up Abel, goes out into the, into the field and kills him. Murders him. So great was his anger. And then God comes and like a just judge, he brings a curse on Cain. And notice Cain's response to the curse. Wait, wait. You can't banish me from your presence. You can't banish me from the face of the earth. That will make me vulnerable to murder. Oh boy, is that ironic. Hypocritical. The world's first murderer is afraid of being murdered. Maybe you should have thought of that, Cain, before you took Abel aside in the field. Still, he's not lamenting the loss of the face of God nor the fruit of the earth nearly as much as he is worrying about his own hide. There is no faith in Cain. But notice the contrast with Abel, who here is said to be doing only two things. First, he is offering to God a lamb, a blood sacrifice for his sin. The second is, once his blood has been shed, he is still speaking. 
Keep that in mind. Hebrews chapter 11. Our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 11. Although I did a fair bit of the sermon right there. Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 11, 1 through 4. Hear again the word of the Lord. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. Amen. And amen. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin says that whoever introduced a chapter break here got it wrong. That this phrase, now faith, is intended to be this organic conclusion, this this natural flow of ideas from everything we've seen in chapter 10. In fact, the phrase, now faith, is building on everything we have seen in chapters 1 through 10. There's the great gospel truth in Hebrews 1 through 9 and a half, in which we are told again and again, Jesus is better, Jesus is superior. He's better than the angels who spoke to the patriarchs in Genesis. He's better than Moses who spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai. He's better than Levi and the Aaronites and the priesthood who served in the tabernacle with their sacrifices. He's better than the 39 books that have come before For he is the substance of those books. Every song, every story, every prophecy, every poem has been pointing to Jesus. They are the shadow. They are the type. They are the anticipation. He is the reality. This is what has been taught to us for nine and a half chapters. In the second half of chapter 10... We were told that we should apply that truth to us. Jesus has come. And he's better than everything else. And in him is the sum total of salvation. There's no salvation outside of him. All salvation is in him. Because this is true, there are three things we should do. This is Hebrews 10, 22-25. Faith, hope, and love. This should be the three hallmarks of the Christian church. That we draw near to God with a heart of faith. That we hold fast our confession of hope. And that we gather together in order to stir up one another to love and good works. Faith, hope, and love. Beginning in verse 32, we've begun to look at faith. What is faith? What does faith do to us? Why is faith the first command? And and we're told, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. 
Faith is the reality of what we hope for. You see, if we hope for something, that means we don't have it, right? As it says in Romans chapter 8, if you have something, you're no longer hoping for it. If you're longing for something that you possess, it's kind of silly. You have possessed it. You no longer long for it. But rather, if we hope for something, that's because we haven't possessed it. It's because we're waiting for it and we're longing for it. Faith is the bridge between our longing and our possessing. Faith is the instrument that unites the present hope to the future reality. Faith is the tether that transcends time into eternity. Faith is the substance, the reality. Now let's get out of the philosophy for a minute. The Greek word is literally foundation. And if Tim Montgomery were here, I would rely on him to explain what I'm about to attempt. It literally means faith is the foundation of things hoped for. That is to say, faith is that stable and sturdy structure on which we build our marriages, our homes, our jobs, our church. Faith is the foundation from which we live and love, from which we work and worship. That foundation rests on footings. Those footings are the promises of God in Scripture. And those footings, those promises of God go all the way down to the very bedrock at the center of the world. The person and character of God. That God, as a sure and unshakable foundation, should Himself provide promises. Spoken and written words. Which are His will and character expressed to us. So that if we were to believe them, That is, rest on them. That is, act as if they were true. Build our relationships. Do our work as if these promises are true. We would build a life of love. We would build a life of eternal life. It is the foundation, this faith. That's why we start here. Now, faith is the foundation of a life of obedience. A life of love. But the Holy Spirit also says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Again, hope is only something that exists when you don't possess. If you have it, then you don't hope. So you are hoping for something you don't have. Likewise, visibility is something that you cannot sense with your eyes. We are, above all creatures, most dependent on sight. We are a tremendously sight-oriented creature, particularly if we have it. Once you introduce ocular vision to a human being, the human will trust sight over sound, over smell, over taste, over touch. The ancient Greek philosophers found this funny. Because they believed sight was the instrument most easily deceived. Is it not so? Do we not often see things that weren't there? 
Don't we often see things that aren't the way we see them? We didn't see them begin, we just saw them in the middle. Sight is easily deceived. And we are told here that faith is the ability to see the unseen. Specifically, that faith is the evidence. That is the proof, or again, the literal concrete word in the Greek is demonstration. Faith is the demonstration of what has not been seen. I have not seen, Calvin in his commentary will give a whole list of these things. I have not seen eternity. But I have it demonstrated to me in the scriptures. And I believe it. I have not seen a holy, righteous, altogether sinless person. But the Bible tells me that's exactly what I am in the eyes of God. I have not seen the new heavens and the new earth. But the Bible tells me they're being constructed by Christ through the power of His Spirit. So, faith has the ability to see, to apprehend, to hold what has not yet come. What is not yet visible. This is why we begin with faith. Faith gives rise to hope. Faith gives rise to hope which flowers into good works and love. But it is faith that must come first. Faith is that foundation from which hope and love grow. But it is not faith in the abstract. I grew up in that Disney generation where I was told repeatedly by cartoon after cartoon, just believe, just believe, just believe. As if the mere exertion of faith was somehow meaningful or powerful. What is more, they never answered the question, just believe in what? Because faith must have an object. Faith must have a content. Faith works upon me to grow up this life of love and good works. This life of hope and of joy and of peace. Faith is the foundation of a life well lived. Faith is the demonstration of that which has not yet been realized. But what is faith in? First in verse 2, we are told that this faith has the profound effect throughout history that we have just described. That faith is the foundation of a life of obedience and of love. But also that faith is the proof or demonstration of the life that is to come. For by it, that is by faith, the elders, that is everybody he's about to list in the book of, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11. So all the names and stories that are about to come, which at the end of the chapter he will say is just a summary sample. Just a platter of hors d'oeuvres. I'm just trying to give you a little taste of all those elders who lived by faith and thus obtained a good testimony. That is to say that faith has been that primary principle, that foundation of godly living, always. Always. When Adam turned to the woman and said, I'm not calling you woman anymore. I'm calling you mother. 
That renaming was an act of faith. Adam and Eve should have died. Dying, they should have died. And instead, the promise was the seed of the woman. There will be a child. And Adam turns to Eve and says, I believe that promise. There's going to be a child. So from now on, you're not woman. You're mother. Because there's going to be a child. Adam believed. Faith is that instrument that connected Adam to Jesus, who he couldn't see and for whom he hoped. Of course, I pick on Adam as an illustration for two reasons. One is he's first in the chronology. The second is his name does not appear in Hebrews 11. It picks up with Abel. And we'll get to him in a moment. But I choose Adam as my illustration to show us that our relationship with God has only ever been on the basis of faith. Not works. Not since the fall. Not since Adam ruined that possibility by eating the forbidden fruit. Beloved, faith is the principle that brings us into a relationship with God. The organ or the instrument by which we lay hold of that which we hope for. Jesus. By which we grow into that which we are becoming. Jesus. And by it, faith in the coming Christ, the elders obtained a good testimony. They obtained first and most personally the testimony of their heavenly Father who received them into glory with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And there is no higher testimony than that. By faith, God testified That they were his beloved children. But what is more, by faith, the elders have remained in the pages of our Bibles. A testimony to the power of faith in God. Dependence on God and trust in God. To that end, let's answer the question. That we should join this story. That we should be united to our elders in this history. By coming together in faith. What should we have faith in? According to verse 3, we should have faith in the Word of God. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. There is a first and apparent interpretation of this verse That is straightforward. We find it in Genesis 1 and 2. You go to the creation story. And you find that in the beginning. God. What else is there? Nothing. There is God. What comes after God? God said. There is God. And there is God's word. Let there be light. And there was light existence of the creation of the world comes from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking. The Word 
frames the world. That is to say that when God speaks, the world exists. That word has caused creation to come to be. But this translation in the Greek, this the worlds were framed by the word of God, this framing isn't simply caused to be or created. It actually is the word for structured or designed or ordered. And again, we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. God not only says, let there be light and let there be water and let there be dry land and let there be plants and animals. He actually puts them in an order. He actually creates the structures and then he fills them. Have you ever seen that form and filling? He creates light in day one. He creates lights in day four. He creates the upper waters and the lower waters with the heavens in between in day two. On day five, he creates the birds and the fish, the ones that live in the sky and the waters. On day three, he creates dry land and grasses. And on day six, he creates the animals and the humans. By this, we understand that God not only caused the creation to be, he specifically designed it. So when you do calculus, it's God's calculus. So when you do science, it's God's science. So when you apply or learn or appropriate a principle of this creation, that's the way God had it in his head. It's his design. He framed it this way. So that we believe that all that we see is made from all that we do not see. We live and work in this world as if there's more to this world than what I can taste, touch, and see. I am not the sum total of my physical parts. Nor are you. Nor are we. Nor is this world. There is an invisible spiritual reality. That not only is beyond the physical reality, but is giving meaning and purpose and design to the physical reality. How do I know what I'm supposed to do with that calculus? I know what I do with it. But how do I know what you're supposed to do with that calculus? The spiritual reality from which it comes. You glorify and enjoy God. Yes. In calculus. And every other created thing. This is his world. And the work that you do in it. You are to do in a way that you glorify and enjoy the God who made this world. That you go to your job. You go to your home. You go to your friends and neighbors and family. In a way that says I believe. There's more to this world than what we taste, touch and see. There is a God we cannot see, and He's here, and He's at work, and when I work, I work with Him. Now notice that in verse 3, it says, now by faith we understand that the world's plural. You might have a footnote that says the Greek sometimes means ages. 
What does it mean to make it plural? Does that mean that there are alternative universes? I'm not much of a sci-fi fan, sorry. No, I think from the context of Hebrews chapters 1 through 10, when the Holy Spirit here speaks of worlds and ages, plural, he means the old and the new. That there is this physical creation whose purpose and value, our work within it finds purpose and value from that which is invisible. The spiritual reality of this creation, our triune God, is here and at work. But there is another world coming. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and sin does not. There is another new age in which there is a new humanity reconstituted in Christ Jesus. So that when we see creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we should immediately connect it with recreation in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. That in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is an inauguration of a new heavens and a new earth. A new age is born. A new world is begun. The new heavens and the new earth have been inaugurated. There is this second world that was likewise framed, designed by the word of God. Jesus, who is the very center of our salvation, that was in the vow I noticed in the baptism vow, that this plan of salvation which centers on Jesus Christ. So to the creation centers on Jesus Christ as we saw in Colossians chapter 1. By faith, we understand these two worlds in which we live. The world of sin and misery, the world of righteousness, the new heavens and the new earth. We understand that both worlds have at their center the word of God, Jesus Christ. I want to unpack this for the rest of the morning, but I can't. Let us suffice to say, I can't because it's afternoon already. There's no more morning to use. But let us suffice to say that by faith we have a foundation on which to live in this world as if the new one is already here. By faith we have the substance of the new heavens and the new earth. For faith is the substance of that which we hope for. And we don't hope for this world. We hope for the new heavens and the new earth. And we have the substance of the new heavens and the new earth. We have the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. We have the foundation of the new heavens and the new earth. His name is Jesus. And we have him. He has come. By faith, we are united to Christ so that that which is visible, water, communicates something that is spiritual, Jesus. So that that which is physical, a man with a word, communicates something that is spiritual, Jesus crucified for sinners. 
In this visible, we see, experience, and receive what is invisible. The person and work of God in Jesus Christ. Abel got this. Now, when I say Abel got this, I don't mean that Abel got all this. Because everything that I just unpacked in terms of the principles and the philosophies and the ideas, that comes in Hebrews chapter 11. Not before. Here's what Abel understood. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Notice first that Abel believes that something should be offered to God. Abel believes there's a relationship between him and God. And something needs to be done about that relationship. Something needs to be offered. He owes God something. And he has to present it. He chooses a more excellent sacrifice. The firstborn of his flock. A lamb. When Moses chooses these words, when the Holy Spirit chooses these words... He is laying on the topology thick, right? Trying to lead us to the inescapable conclusion. That little lamb was pointing us to Jesus. Why did Abel take the life of a lamb? Because by faith, he was reaching out in hope to the coming of the Christ. He had the substance of what he hoped for. He had the evidence of what he could not see. He took the lamb in his hands... And he said, there's the physical reality, a dead animal. But by faith, I have now in my heart, Jesus. Do you guys understand what it means for us to follow in Abel's footsteps? To say, I hold bread and cup in my hands. But by faith, I'm united to Christ. That I have water visibly displayed before my eyes, washing not simply dirt from skin, but sin from soul. Is this what we believe? That the physical is the playground for the spiritual. And that this world is God working out His will for our salvation. And that we are to work and to worship in a way that is in Christ. Through Christ and for Christ. This is what faith means. That I am united to Him and have a more excellent sacrifice. The Holy Spirit tells us that this more excellent sacrifice has two effects. The first effect is that through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying to his gifts. Now this reward for this most excellent sacrifice, a lamb whose life was taken in order that God and humanity should be reconciled, this picture of Jesus crucified on the cross receives the highest commendation. God himself says of Abel, that was the right choice. To come to me in the blood of a lamb, the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He obtained a witness that he was righteous. 
Abel, of course, is the son of Adam, a son of Eve. He was not born righteous. He was born in sin, with a sin nature. And when he was in Eve's abdomen, he kicked her in sin. And when he came out of Eve's abdomen, he came with pain and with blood. As it had been greatly multiplied in the curse. Abel was not by nature righteous. But God here, according to Hebrews 11.4, testified and declared him righteous. God declared Abel righteous because he offered a lamb. He had faith in a lamb. And that faith was counted to Abel as righteousness. He was declared righteous for it. Which brings us to the last and greatest reward. And through it, that is through that faith, that faith by which God was moved to say of Abel, that guy's righteous. He's my kid. Through that faith that united Abel to Christ, through it, he being dead still speaks. Now, immediately on the surface, it seems that the Holy Spirit is pointing us back to that little historical fact in Genesis 4 that we read. That when God comes to Cain and says, Cain, where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. And then he says to Cain, what have you done? For your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now, in Hebrews chapters 1 through 10, we've seen blood again and again. The blood of animals by which there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, through which there is most certainly the forgiveness of sins. And again and again, we have seen the author of the, Holy, of the, of the book of Hebrews, that is the Holy Spirit, say, blood is life. Don't drink the blood of the animal. That's the life of the animal. The blood is is the life. So when God says that Abel's blood is in the ground and it's speaking, it means Abel being dead is not dead. As Jesus himself will say, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living and not of the dead. When God speaks to Cain in Genesis 4, Abel being dead is by faith living with God. The first resurrection. The resurrection that is awaiting, that is a type, shadow, a picture of the resurrection that is to come in Christ Jesus. Such that the Holy Spirit should come to us this morning. And write these words in the present tense. That the Holy Spirit should testify to you and me today. That by faith we can hold in our hands the new heavens and the new earth. In this physical reality, sinful and miserable as it is, we can have the substance of what we hope for. 
So that by faith we can understand that this earthly experience is connecting us to a heavenly eternity. So that we by faith can with Abel enter into a life of work and worship to the glory of God. And hear the Holy Spirit testify through faith. Abel being dead still talks to you through this, his scriptures. Here in the word of God, the word of God which has been made flesh and dwells among us. We have the whisper of Abel coming down through the ages. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And he who is dead still speaks. Believe in Jesus. Because he who died in faith is now living forevermore in faith. Beloved, this is the truth of God for us this morning. This is good news. That Jesus saves. Let us long for Him. Let us hope in Him. Beloved, please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks for these beautiful verses. We give You thanks for the truth of our Savior that is here offered to us, and we pray that we would receive it by faith. That we would believe that in these words, which are visible, there might be the invisible reality of grace and truth, forgiveness and love. And that these words which we have heard, which are invisible, might work within us a faith that will become visible through our hope and our love and our good works. We give you thanks, O God, for these gospel truths and pray that we would rejoice in them to the praise of your name. For in that name we pray. Amen.